Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, and we're a chart-topping, award-winning dialogue podcast. And what that means is we aspire to have real, different conversations about business and life. And this is a very special episode with uh, none other than legendary four-star general Stan McChrystal. Recently, we had on his partner and uh, co-author, Chris Fussell, of a former uh, Navy SEAL on episode 149. And um, uh, to say that I'm um, humbled and stoked to have these gentlemen in my life would be to put it mildly. And I can't wait to share this conversation with you. Stan McChrystal is a best-selling author, entrepreneur, and educator today. So imagine being able to sit down for a coffee or a beer with the guy that former Defense Secretary Robert Gates calls, quote, perhaps the finest warrior and leader of men in combat I have ever met, end quote. And we get into it. Leadership, digital leadership, crisis management, Stan's view on how we got here with COVID-19, and most importantly, how we get out. We discuss the digital divide between what the public and private sectors can do as digital businesses and digital enterprises and what we should do about it. And I would urge you to pay special attention. The general has some very specific advice for business leaders, state governors, and the president of the United States. This is a legendary conversation with a legendary American hero, and I know you're going to love it. Now, as you might know, I've been an advisor uh, to about 50 venture-backed companies. And when time gets tough, and in some cases, survival is on the line, you need to be on top of your numbers. And that's where my friends at Oracle NetSuite come in. Because you need to stay on top of it. You need the visibility and control you need of the critical metrics and financial information around how much cash do we have? What's our cash flow? What's happening with our accounts receivable? Uh, Where are we on inventory? Do we have certain things that are selling? Uh, Has our mix got to change? How are we doing with omni-channel commerce? Do we need to, because of physical distancing, move more of our business online? Whatever it is, you need the complete business system to make that happen. And that's NetSuite from Oracle. And that's why, frankly, NetSuite's become number one in cloud ERP. And so visit netsuite.com slash different. And while you're there, you can get your free guide to managing business uncertainty and set up your free product tour at netsuite.com slash different. And um, one thing is crystal clear. Digital business and data matter more than ever for for companies and frankly for government agencies and it is very clear that uh, digital enterprises that are powered by data are outperforming those uh, that don't do it and that's where my friends at Splunk come in they are the category queens and kings of data to everything they help you bring data to every question every decision and every action go to splunk.com slash d the number two e as in data to everything that's splunk.com slash D2E and learn how you can turn data into doing. Now, hey ho, let's go. This will be a special memory someday. We'll talk about this time. And if we get it right, I mean, if we care about the people we care about, and if we do the, the right things like you're trying to do with 
equipment and all like that, then we can hold our heads high after the fact. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. You know, I've heard many people say, and I think this is very true, that when this is all over, we will all have to answer the question, what did you do during COVID-19 to make a difference? That's right. That's exactly right. And one of the things I'd like to take my hat off to you and, and, and to Chris about, you know, we had him on very recently and, um, I just really deeply appreciate how, uh, I consider you and him true American heroes and how you now as private citizens in the work that you do around leadership and so forth, it just appears you have steered right into this crisis. We think that the crisis is something that people need a little bit of help with. I mean, it's disorienting. It's, it's different from most of the crises in their life. And so it came as this amorphous viral threat. And then we get our legs swept out from under us with economic tail to it. And so the average person is going through an experience they probably never predicted. And they've got to get their mind around it. And they, not their own mind, just their own mind but also their family, their organization, and all the people that care about. And so it's, you know, we, we steal ourselves for the unexpected. And then when the unexpected comes, we still have a tough time dealing with it. Yeah. And so as an extraordinary leader who's faced massive uncertainty, massive crisis, of course, and the horrible reality of, of, deaths that um, are, are not possible for me anyway to understand. You know, you have stood in the face of these things you know, post 9-11, uh, you and Chris, and of course, our military. And so how do you think about, you know, you guys have been writing about leadership a lot. And of course, your books center on those themes. Um, and I, I love the article you both wrote for the New York Times. And so maybe help me with your thoughts on crisis leadership, particularly when there's bad news every day and there's deaths and how, how you keep focused. The first thing is there are fundamentals of leadership that hopefully we're all doing all the time, treating people the way I ought to be treated, showing the correct values and, and doing our job. But in a crisis, things change a little bit because people who normally are pretty steady can suddenly feel a bit of drift. Your organization can have had a strategy that it was very comfortable with, that it was executing in a set of plays, and suddenly that strategy, for any number of reasons, appears to be absolutely invalid now. And so the leaders got a role to first give people a set of a sense of direction. And that sense of direction is it begins with the leader standing up and the leader accepting responsibility for their role. Uh, the leader has got to be visible, even if it's virtually. The leader has got to accept responsibility. Okay, we are leading. That doesn't mean the leader does everything, but it, it means that the leader says, I am responsible for my role to help us as a group and you as individuals get to where we need to go. The second thing the leader needs to do is provide direction because the direction may change suddenly. You may have had a business that was going one way, and after this crisis, it's quite possible that many businesses will go in very different directions. And they could be good directions. But people can feel as though everything they are doing is either no longer logical or they can't put the pieces together to understand where they're going. So the leader's got to provide that direction. But the leader doesn't have to have a crystal ball. 
the leader doesn't have to be the one, the one-eyed man in the valley of the blind. The leader can say, listen, things have changed dramatically and be humble enough to say, I'm not sure how this is going to play out, but we are going to sort it out. We are going to iterate our way to figuring out where we need to go. And, and I think that's more genuine and, and works with people. Finally, the leaders got to inspire. People get frightened. We all get frightened, every one of us. And sometimes we can get tired. We can get discouraged. You can have worked a long time and feel like you suddenly got the wind knocked out of you. And leaders have to give us a sense that we're going to get through this and we're going to be better for it. Uh, not lying to people, but reaching with the idea of providing a vision. I love all that. And uh, it really resonates with me. One of the things I've noticed that you've been doing in this crisis, both you and Chris, and it seems like that team broadly at McChrystal Group, not only are you steering into it, putting great content out in the world, contributing your knowledge and experience, um, but you're also making yourself, to your point, very visible. You've been doing a lot of PR lately. You've been in the media. You folks are doing this wonderful uh, webinar series, you put together that wonderful guide, which we're going to send out to everybody and make available on our website. Um, Chris sent it along. And so it just seems like you are, A, contributing a lot of knowledge and, and content and information based on your experiences, and B, it appears, at least to the casual looker or onlooker here, that you as a group have made a decision to get visible and, and be more prominent or more public than, than maybe you are normally. Is that what you're doing? That's exactly what we're doing because we typically don't push that hard. Uh, and so we thought in this crisis, people were suddenly going to be at a place where they need a sense of stability. They need some answers. And we don't give a checklist that says, do this and you'll be fine. What we give is some experiences that we have, some techniques that have worked before and we believe will work now, and a sense that there's a way to get through this because others have gone through it before. One of the things that you wrote about in the New York Times was this concept that I love. I love the phrase digital leadership. And uh, when Chris and I spoke just recently, he was talking about how post 9-11, one of the decisions that you made was to do these daily video briefings. And so I would love for you to sort of uh, tell me about your thoughts on digital leadership, what it meant back then, and sort of how you think about it now. I need to first debunk the myth that I was a visionary who decided to distribute the organization. What happened was we ran up against al-Qaeda in Iraq and this fight, they were geographically spread, they were opportunistic, they were networked. And so to compete, we had to be. So we took the organization, which was used to working geographically together, and we spread them over 76 different bases across 27 countries. But it was a 24-hour war, meaning you had to resynchronize your operations every 24 hours because it changed that fast. So out of necessity, we spread our force. And that was 2003. And then we realized, well, how do you synchronize that? We were sort of at the beginning of the technological boom. And we latched on to video teleconferences off laptops and, and in rooms. And we connected the entire force every day for 90 minutes. When we, when I took command, it was 50 people for 30 minutes. Then we opened it to 7,500 people for 90 minutes. And to some people, that sounds like madness, but it was the most efficient thing I've ever been a part of because 
in 90 minutes every day, the entire organization went in the huddle with the quarterback. Everybody exchanged what they knew. We got a common picture of what was happening. We called it shared consciousness. And then they could go out and execute. They didn't have to be told what to do. This wasn't a decision-making forum. When everybody knew the big picture, they could go out and make good decisions based upon the unique situation in their area and yet have it contribute to the whole. Uh, it was fortuitous that information technology was suddenly as prolific as it was, but it meant a different kind of leadership. Now, Chris, you and I are talking right now and we're 3,000 miles apart. And we are trying to connect in a way that's human. And we talked a little bit before this podcast started. We've looked at each other on the camera. And what we learned about digital leadership is it's it's uh, awkward for most people. Oh, it takes a while to learn. So you have to develop a an ability or an affinity for it. One of the first things leaders must do is understand that everybody's awkward with it. So you've got to be more expressive, more focused. So when I talk to somebody like a junior person, I can't be down at my computer multitasking or looking over and talking to somebody else. I've got to focus right on them to show my respect and to show my interest. Because in the room, you can sometimes signal that you can't otherwise. And if I want to get something across, as I used to tell people, you're sort of competing for every distraction in the room. And so with every distraction in the room, so you got to be interested. You mean to tell me, I hate to interrupt <laughs> yeah. you, but do you mean to tell me even when they're talking to you, a four-star general, some people are prone to surf the internet <laughs> or check their email or something along those lines that even you have to be compelling and interesting? <laughs> and, and I failed time and again. <laughs> but you, you are competing with all the things in life now. And if think of your, your workforce has now been sent home. And on day one, they got to work in their pajamas and they said, ah, this is all right. I can get my laptop to work. And then they're sitting at the kitchen table. Their spouse has lost their job. Their three kids are out of school. So they're running around. There's not that home office beautifully set up for them. They've got a parent that lives with them and might, you know, have health issues. So suddenly their life's a lot more complicated than it might seem when they're at work, because at work, you see them when they get dressed up, they come to work, and you see what they present. To appreciate the fact that them working at home can feel isolated. It can feel uh, as though you're not able to get the, the cues that you get in an office where someone tells you, good job, with a touch on your shoulder or a smile. You can't watch your peers to see what they're doing to learn how something's done. And all of those things are... Uh, unspoken ways organizations get better. When you're at a uh, distributed uh, and you're limited to digital, you've got to be very thoughtful about its use. And I would say, and I hate the word aggressive, but energetic in its use. You got to communicate more. You got to be more disciplined about how often you communicate. And when you communicate, you got to try to wring out every bit of value out of it, the, the personal interaction, because that's what keeps all of us going. I, I love every, every bit of that. And I think, you know, the interesting thing for people who are new at it, of course, I'm very used to it now, having had many of these conversations digitally. And of course, the interesting thing, at least for me with you, this is, I think, the third 
maybe the fourth time we've done this, but we've done it a few times for sure. And uh, done it a few times with, with Chris Fussell as well. And my experience of the two of you is that I know you. My experience is that I have a sense of who you guys are as human beings. And, uh, I would like to consider you friends. You might not want to consider me as such, but, and, and the interesting thing to me, you know, I look at uh, a relationship I have with a dear friend of mine, Eddie Yoon. We're working on a book together now. And he and I met digitally. I met him through his writing. He came on my podcast. We developed a friendship. I helped him with his books. He's helped me with my books. And then we decided to write a book together all before we ever even met in person. And so there's this interesting aha, isn't there, that if we, you know, quote unquote, get this digital thing right, we can actually find a way 3,000 miles away to develop a close personal and professional relationship, some shared admiration, and actually commit to doing some pretty important things together. I think that's absolutely right. And we are probably at the beginning of really figuring this out. Think of the sales process. Right now, when you go to sell something, you usually think you got to be in the room, you got to take somebody to lunch or dinner, that sort of thing. We're press the flesh, yeah, right? We're going to get to the point where people are comfortable doing that, where people are comfortable taking real advice from someone who's a long way away that they only see on the screen of a laptop or something. I, I think that if we focus ourselves and we say, this is what we must use to be effective, we, we can make it pretty amazing. And maybe share with me, um, now, of course, you're an entrepreneur and you have, if I remember right, roughly a hundred or so folks distributed around the world. Is that correct? That's correct. And so, uh, and you're a consulting business. And of course, you're a well-known keynote speaker and, and you folks travel around and you do consulting and training and workshops and speaking and all this stuff that is uh, you know, you're in, in front of people, you're out in the world, you're on planes, you're doing all these things. And of course, now you can't. And so maybe share a little insight in terms of what you and Chris and the leadership team at McChrystal have been doing to um, to do your work now digitally. Yeah, that's a very interesting question, because as soon as this hit, as you can imagine, it's like a freight train running into a brick wall. Suddenly you say, well, we can't do our jobs. How's our business going to survive? And one of the first things we learned is some of our clients that we've been working with for a while, we essentially were able to transition to do our work virtually. We weren't traveling to them and we've been able to, to continue it. One of our clients where we had been doing training in groups of 40 and they've been coming to McChrystal Group and we do courses, they've decided to transition those courses to virtual. Now we had been developing that for a while. And we were going to hit the market with it, but we really hadn't exercised the muscle. And now we are. Uh, it's interesting. Things like uh, speaking that I do, and Chris does a lot, that's suddenly stopped because nobody's having events. I don't mind the airplanes being gone right now, but the reality is I think that there is going to be a move in that market for virtual interaction where somebody gets in front with a high quality screen or, or whatever and gives a pitch to a group and then is able to answer questions like you and I are having a conversation now. And it's remarkably more flexible, uh, could be a lot more economically easy for organizations if they want to have gatherings. And they could also do them virtually. 
I've been doing a lot of things with companies in the last two weeks where they are all working at home and they bring me on and we have a conversation. And then, you know, how easy is that? Now, again, we're still all learning this, but I think it's moving pretty quickly. And and the thing that Chris and I feel so strongly about is nobody and no businesses are going back eight or 12 weeks. That time is now past. Chris describes it as his before and after time. Everyone will remember before COVID-19 and after COVID-19. I think for most organizations, what that's going to mean is the status quo ante is gone. Now, some will try to go back to it. Some are just waiting for the water to recede and they want to get back to it. But what they're going to find is their competitors and the people, their clients, customers, suppliers will have started moving on. And that the future is going to be some hybrid between what we did and probably what we're doing now. And, and really forward looking organizations are, are figuring that out right now. They're trying things and they're learning. So let's maybe go there for a bit. There's an aha that I've been having. Uh, one of my dear friends is a guy named uh, Doug Merritt and Doug's the chief executive of a, uh, plus or minus $2 billion technology company, public company called Splunk. And so we've been having discussions as this has been going on about you know, the whole thing. And we sort of have this aha that I want to maybe test on you. And the aha goes like this. If you take three legendary American firms right now, and you just look at them for a second, and, and three that I want to point out would be Amazon, Costco, and Walmart. Point A is we've discovered that those three companies, and there are others, of course, but those three um, are not just companies, they're essential services. Secondarily, and this is maybe the controversial part that I want to bounce off you, if you look at what they've been able to do, how quickly they reacted, how they changed their supply lines, in the case of both Walmart and Amazon, if I'm not mistaken, both are trying to onboard 100,000 people. Imagine how hard that would be. Both of them are scaling, changing. They've got to, of course, integrate their websites and, and their physical locations, in the case of Costco and, and Walmart, and so forth and so on. And they've had to change all sorts of policies and retrain a whole bunch of people and protect their people. And I mean, when you start to think about what the leaders of those organizations have had to achieve in the last handful of weeks and how how they've had to react quickly, it's a stunner. And I would argue that Amazon is a native digital business. And I would argue that Costco and Walmart have become, quote unquote, digitally transformed. And so here's maybe the controversial thing. If you compare those three organizations to the average federal, state, or local government agency that has had to deal with this at whatever level in whatever way, what Doug and I have been talking about is we're seeing a real bifurcation between the level of data savvy, digital capability in the private sector as compared to the public sector. That's sort of conclusion A. And this might be the more con even more controversial one is that in a crisis like this, data saves lives and the ability to leverage digital technology to move and lead is critical. And for the most part, we've seen the private sector on this dimension, outperform the public sector. But this is an ongoing discussion he and I have been having, and I've been dying to kind of bounce it off you and get your reaction. Yeah, well, my reaction is it's it's not only correct, but it's going to increase the distance between them. When I uh, 
I grew up in the military. In the military, when it buys a widget, it has to buy a million widgets, one for every soldier. And so it's very conservative about how it acquires them, and it, it tends to have them a long time. And the problem with that, of course, is you can't update things quickly, and there's not a there's not a nimbleness to it. When I took Joint Special Operations Command, one of the things I was blessed with, it was a small organization that had special acquisition rules. We didn't have to follow the normal DOD rules. So we could buy what we wanted very quickly and do. And we could change the organization because we were a one of a kind and there was no limitation to it. So we became very entrepreneurial. But what it highlighted for me was all the forces that stop normal government organizations, the budget process, the idea that you can't waste money. When we went into Iraq and Afghanistan, there were almost no interrogators in the U.S. defense structure. And that's because in peacetime, when you didn't need them, they'd been sort of whittled away, like get rid of the fat. When you get to war, you have to have that. You have to be able to get information because information is the difference between winning and losing. But that, those aren't easy to count. You can count tanks. You can count battleships. Whereas interrogators, it's a little less concrete. And so... I think what happens is because there's no competition until you have competition with a foreign power in the military or competition with a pandemic, does it just scream out at you how uh, how inflexible those organizations are? I'm just not sure I see likelihood of change on the horizon because the process by which you fund them, the process by which you man them and you push decisions There'd have to be some kind of forcing function that I don't think is going to be constant enough to cause that. It, it pains me to hear you say that, uh, Stan, because if you think about some simple things, think about, for example, the supply chain visibility uh, that a Amazon or a Walmart or a Costco would have in a, fi- in a pretty real-time basis and their ability to manage their supply chain to deliver for the American people so that we can keep ourselves uh, fed and taken care of in this crisis. And then if you look at it on the pr- on the private side, on the public side, excuse me, it's clear that as a nation, we don't have visibility into the healthcare supply chain. We don't have price transparency around the supply chain. So we have Governor Gavin Newsom on TV talking about how he's literally outbidding the federal government for PPE and and so forth. And so because there's no visibility, there's no control across the healthcare supply chain, and there's no transparency in in this case around pricing and availability and time to deliver critical resources, we now have this chaos where it's kind of you know, you got every state for themselves and the federal government and and so forth. And yet you look at how by comparison, smooth Costco, Amazon, and and Walmart have been in dealing with somewhat, if not very similar kinds of supply chain issues and rapid fire changes. Don't you think it's time at the federal level and even across government agencies that we start talking about a digital strategy where we use data and information to react and respond quickly to problems? Well, I absolutely do. Uh, but that's going to be up to voters. Because we'll have at the end of the COVID-19 problem, we'll have investigations about what happened and there'll be, we'll drill into certain things that fell, that fell way short of what we needed. 
But the question is, will we hold people accountable? And when we hold people accountable, it's one thing just to say, you know, vote the bums out of office. That's not the same as reforming the government and getting a digital strategy and demanding that the government at local and at the federal level have a workable digital strategy. That means we've got to have people who look at that. You've got to have metrics to that. You've got to be able to report out to the American people, do we or do we not have one? Right now, we're at that point where everybody's arguing about whether this has been good or not. We'll figure that out. In the rearview mirror, it's going to be obvious where the shortcomings were. But I'm not sure that that what you and I would both hope would happen is we would say a rational change in this would be the following things on a digital strategy. And will that pressure be maintained? Because the great thing about Amazon, Walmart, Costco is they've got constant pressure on them. If, if they don't keep hustling, they or other competitors are going to, going to kill. Yeah. It is interesting. The, the other one too on the digital front and on data front, part of it is technology, but part of it's a mindset. And, and one of the things I think those of us who've grown up in the technology world have had to get comfortable with, and it's clear that some of our government leadership at least doesn't appear to be comfortable with is, we encounter data all the time. And we use data to change our decisions and our actions all the time. And many of us in the tech world, I think, are somewhat used to being on a certain path or having a certain opinion or taking a certain approach. And then all of a sudden being presented with data and realizing that, well, maybe yesterday, based on our experience and the data we had yesterday, the approach we've been on felt like the right decision. We now get presented with new data and we go, holy shit, um, we actually have to do something different. And it doesn't fit our opinion. And we may have to come out and say, listen, we yesterday we said X, but now it's Y, et cetera. And so from a mindset leadership perspective, how do you think about leading with data, particularly when the data presents you with things that might make you look like what you did yesterday was was dumb or wrong or so forth? Yeah, I think this is a huge point, something I've been studying recently. One is in most of my experience, even where we thought we were using data, we would People in some part of the organization would get numbers, crunch them, and they usually boil it down to some PowerPoint slides. And that's what would get into the management or the boardroom. By the time it got in there, the people who were consuming it, that the senior leaders making the decision, didn't really understand the data. Somebody had interpreted it, and it was sort of pick A or B, and there was a recommendation there. They didn't, they weren't schooled enough in where the data came from how it was put together. They couldn't follow the logic trail to know whether this data is positive. Because as you know, data improperly used will take you anywhere you want it. It wants to take you. Uh, I learned that with intelligence in the counter-terrorist fight because you can get intelligence and it can be very sexy and very interesting, but taken incorrectly. I, I had to learn things like, okay, where did this come from? And they'd say, it came from an agent. Okay, tell me about him. Give me his life story. Take me through this so I can start to assess the validity of that. Well, data is even more so. So I think what we're going to have to do is start to develop generations of leaders comfortable enough with, okay, what data are we talking about? What data is not included in this calculation? How does how are we working toward a conclusion with this data? And therefore, how can we use it? Then I think we become 
much more comfortable with making decisions rapidly with data and changing decisions. Because most of the decisions I saw, particularly in government, were you have this data come in, but the decision was made based on intuition. And the data was sort of a window dressing to it. We're going to have to be able to let data drive us much more rapidly because at times it's going to be, you know, at lightning speed and we're going to have to make some pretty major course corrections when suddenly the data tells us something different from what we had thought. And as a leader and as uh, an American who's been in a leadership position that, that, that few of us can imagine, never mind will ever be in, how do you deal with data information presented to you that that is sort of 180 different from what it was yesterday and your own personal ego and having to say this to people. We say, well, yesterday we thought X, but now s- such and such has come to light and now it's something different. And you may have been out there briefing and selling the idea of X and you get pretty tied to that. And then someone comes and says, well, X is actually Y. And sometimes it can either always have been why and you didn't have the information or it changed to why. It's very hard to uh, then turn around and say, unless we start with the, the idea that a rational person, if they get new information, will change their decision. Because wouldn't you want any decision maker if they got, if they suddenly found out that two plus two does not equal four to, to make a different decision? But but sometimes we're afraid of appearing weak or afraid of appearing we might have been wrong. And that's less important than making the right decision. And so are you optimistic that we'll start to see more uh, leadership along those lines, particularly in um, our government, various levels of government? <laughs> you know, I am optimistic. I just don't think it's soon. I think it's going to take a little while. I think that generations that grew up with data We'll move in that direction more naturally, more comfortably. Um, what I worry most about is right now we are suspicious of data. And I am suspicious of data because we used to have a period when there were news sources, information sources, and you, you treated them with a fair amount of credibility because there were filter systems that checked and balanced on it. Nowadays, there's no filter. So anybody with information can call it data or they can call it truth and they can pump it out. And so the ability to curate that and to figure out what's true and what isn't is hard in real time. And we're not doing very well. We as a a population have not developed personal filters. We haven't been able to to call BS. Yeah. And and that's dangerous. The other thing, and look, I know a lot of people don't want to look in the rearview mirror, and and I I do want to absolutely get to where you think we go from here, how we open up. Um, what are the key learnings to for the next COVID nineteen? But just before we go there, you know, when you look at the when you look at the data, and particularly look at the graphs, what's a stunning thing to see, at least for me, is when you take the top twenty five countries in terms of number of cases and deaths, and you look at the graph over time. There's one graph that is very very high sloping, and countries like India for example, have a very different looking graph, at least as of right now. And so the United States has the most cases, the most deaths, and the most severe graph 
And we've been talking for what feels like a century about flattening the curve. And yet when you actually look at our curve of cases and deaths as compared to 24 other countries, it's clear the United States has has failed on this front. And so what do you make of the U.S.'s response, particularly when compared to other other countries? Yeah. In a word, it's been pathetic. But let's put on the table a couple of excuses we have. The United States is an open society, a lot of travel in and out, a lot of freedoms. So there's probably some reason why transmission within our society could move a bit faster once COVID-19 got here than, uh, than some other countries. But that's a pretty weak excuse. In reality, in 2019, Chris Crimson Contagion, the, the tabletop exercise conducted by the United States government, predicted this almost exactly, except that the contagion came from China and went first to Chicago, and it grew. And it found a number of shortcomings in our protective equipment, ventilators, our processes. It was, you know, blinking red lights that screamed out at us. And that wasn't eight years ago that people forgotten. That was 2019. And so People have been thinking about pandemics for a long time, as we should. You know, there have been movies and books and constant things as well as real ones. So when it came, uh, a couple of things happened that I thought were particularly uh, difficult for us to, to look at now. The first is we went into a level of denial and there was senior leadership saying, no, it's not really a problem. Uh, we're, we've got it contained. Don't worry about it. And so that slowed everything else down. And if it was just to calm the population while below the waterline, the federal government had been going 100 miles an hour, all right, that would be different, but it wasn't. And so as a consequence, we we dragged our feet. And then when it got serious, then we're bidding between states for protective equipment. We're, we're losing Americans that didn't have to die. You, you really believe that, Stan? Uh, I, I, you know, I'm... I'm not a scientist, but when I look at the data and I compare it to other countries, you know, even to Italy, which had some systemic issues while the problems were, uh, there's just no excuse for us letting it get out of our control as we have in the United States. Wow. Those are big words coming from you. Now, I want to ask you, of course, in the oh, before I get to this question, as an analogy, is it sort of like you're in charge of central command, but the various branches of the military are competing for resources and equipment and so forth, and you're doing one thing and the the army, the navy, et cetera, et cetera, are doing it. That's sort of what it feels like vis-a-vis the federal government and the states, but is, I don't know. Is that a good analogy? Well, it actually is because those things happened inside of the military, not quite as bad as this has been. But without a coordinated approach, without somebody that's actually making things happen in a rational way, even a, an internal marketplace action, that those kinds of things were very basic. The first thing you do is you share a common picture. Every part of the U.S. should have been getting a common picture every day of what the COVID-19 situation was. So they have the common understanding. And then as it started to develop in certain areas worse than others, then we should have looked and says, okay, we know exactly how much 
we have in terms of resourcing, in terms of medical professionals, protective equipment. Then you fight it like a war. You say, okay, everybody send ventilators to area X. We're going to make sure we're good there. It's This isn't high order leadership. This is basic management. If you try to fight 50 separate state battles against COVID-19, every one of those is going to be more costly than it needs to be. Now, in the military, uh, my understanding is that you spend a disproportionate amount of your time, you tell me the right words, war gaming, planning, scenario planning, of course, training, not just uh, training individuals, but training planners, training people on the logistics side, uh, engineers, all the different components. It seems like there's a tremendous premium in our military placed on uh, preparedness, on training, on scenario planning, and then on getting in the field and actually seeing how ideas in the boardroom work on the field so that when the day comes and we deploy, we're ready because we've trained for the exact environment that we're now going to be in and away we go. Do you, do you, is that correct? Am I assuming that correctly? That's exact. That's exactly right. And so are we at a place now where we have to start wargaming out how to deal with pandemics? Oh, of course. And, and that's not, I mean, it's not that hard to do all you have to do. I mean, you can do it with tabletop exercises. You don't actually have to move stuff, although you can always practice that. You just got to go through the drill. Now, people will say, well, you never know exactly what the next pandemic is going to be. It doesn't matter. You're developing the muscles that allow you to respond. You know, the, the contingency you have to execute is never the one you planned most for, but you are more prepared because you've gone through that kind of drill and that kind of thinking. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. So let's talk about where you think we go uh, from here. How do we um, how do we get out of this quagmire um, in a way that saves lives? And of course, everybody's concerned about the economy. And I think, you know, I don't know about you, this debate about is it the economy or is it live? It seems like a ridiculous conversation to me. But uh, regardless of that, let me get your thoughts. Where, where do you think we go from here and, and how do we begin to get out of this? Yeah, I think first we need to make an assumption that this is going to last for a year to year and a half more. Not exactly like this. It will wax and wane, but it will be in our lives until a vaccine is here. And then the threat of other pandemics will will be there. So it's going to be a factor. If we assume that, then we have to figure out how we are going to operate. Uh, We talked a little bit about that distributed organizations, modifying some of the things we do. One of the things that Chris and I have spent a lot of time talking about lately is one of the reasons we don't uh, do as well at each state municipality with this kind of problem is many of them don't have the ability to gather that much information, do that much planning. But if we connected them all, connected them in a, an effective network so that everyone had real-time connectivity getting clear information, could do things. Then they leverage all of the work that's being done in the entire network. Suddenly, we'd be dramatically more effective because you wouldn't have to to build redundantly capability in each of the states or municipalities. I think that's where we need to go. Now, people will say that FEMA and some other organizations have those. I will argue that they have not apparently been nearly as powerful in passing information. I think the governor should be talking every day 
Every governor should get in on a 20-minute call in the morning, a video teleconference. They're all in there and they say, what's happening? What are we doing? Where are we going? That sort of thing. Hopefully led by the federal government. But if not, let the, let the network uh, take that. That's where I think the next big step has to become because it will prepare us for any kind of crises, whether it's natural disaster or other going forward. The other thing that you folks have talked a bunch about, and I'd love for you to connect sort of, if you will, quote unquote, crisis leadership to this idea of transparency, because it feels like to me that uh, some companies in the private sector have been radically transparent with their people and customers in a way that's inspiring. Of course, others have not. And I think the same is true of our uh, elected officials and our various government leaders. We see some that appear to be radically transparent and very forward in what they're sharing with us. And then there's others who, you know, in our county, we can't even figure out. They won't tell us how many ventilators we have. I remember when I was young, I read a book on Christopher Columbus. And the story said that each day Christopher Columbus would measure how far he thought his three ships had gone. But knowing that his crew was nervous about leaving too far from the European coast, he understated it. And he told them where they only went about half that far. And I think the desire to not scare the people that you are leading so that you don't get an overreaction is a mistake because eventually the reality comes out and then your credibility is gone. I also think people can deal much better with transparency and clarity if people know that it's going to be difficult and it's going to last a while. Tell them that. Don't surprise them each week. Oh, no, one more week. When you run a marathon, you know it's 26.2 miles and you get your mind set up for it. If someone added three more miles at the end of it, a lot of people would quit because the surprise of it. I mean, so I think that transparency is critical, respecting the American people and demanding that they understand more you know, challenging them to understand more and demand that they understand more so that they are more demanding of, of our governments. Yes. A educated, smart electric is a, uh, is what we want. Is it not? Well, Tocqueville said our democracy would never survive without it. Yeah. And so as we think about moving back, you said one to one and a half years and you mentioned vaccine, you know, what I've been hearing, I'm trying to educate myself, of course, um, uh, is that these are the things I'm hearing, but I'm very curious to hear what you think that in order to come back, we need testing, we need tracing, we need treatments and we need a vaccine. And there's different arguments about what we need and what, what levels and what should come first and da, 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 da. But that for you and I to feel comfortable sitting in a restaurant, for you and I to feel comfortable booking a ticket on a plane with our families and going wherever, you know, we need to know as we go out in the world that we're not going to get sick, we're not going to make others sick, and we're not going to make our loved ones and our colleagues sick. And those seem to be the things that people are focusing on. A, how does that sound to you? And B, how, how do you see it playing out? Sure. I think the vaccine is the longest. And of course, it's the most decisive when you've got it, because that could, at least for COVID-19, it could take that off the table. But I think that's a ways out. And so in the interim, you're exactly right. The ability to do enough testing, to know how much coronavirus is in a neighborhood, in a group, 
know what your risks are. Before I ask people in my company to travel somewhere or to come into the office, I want to know what I'm asking them to do. Am I asking them to do something very risky or is it something that with, you know, just common sense things is not a big problem? It's, it's almost unfair to, to require leaders to accept responsibility for putting people in harm's way with no, with not uh, enough information. It'll never be perfect. But I think we'll start to get a sense of that. Some areas are going to do it much better than others, I think, that the ability to do a lot of testing to get a, a certain amount of uh, uh, understanding of how many people might be immune from having had it, if, if it turns out that that's that sort of thing. Yeah. Now, I'm curious, there's three uh, I- I groups of individuals I would love to know what you would say to them if they asked for your counsel. So if I was the president of the United States and I said to you, General McChrystal, um, what advice would you have for me as we go forward to do the best job for the American people and, and the American economy? What would your advice be to the president? I think that the uh, the president's desire that the economy come back rapidly for the economic welfare of Americans is what everybody would have. I would tell him, start by telling the truth. Be straightforward with people. The challenge now is there is a percentage of America that doesn't believe anything the president says. There's another group that, that gives it much more credibility. But the gap between those is so stark. It's hard to make a country work. You can disagree with people of different uh, political backgrounds, but now we don't believe them. We just discount everything that's said. And if we can't close that part of the gap, then I think we've got a problem. And I think it starts with the president. The president has to set an example. And what would your message be to the governors uh, in the United States as we go forward? Yeah, they are, of course, all different. So generalizing is always dangerous, but they have a huge leadership responsibility. They are not just leading a state as a body. The body of governors are also a big part of the leadership of the nation. They are what people believe in right now, governors and mayors. Um, I think that responsibility has got to be taken very, very seriously because if we get the same level of disbelief at the state level, and it happens in some places, then we start to have a complete disdain for our governance. And one of the most dangerous things we could have is to the point where people are contemptuous of their own government. Then the idea that America is a stable democracy is a question mark. And it's interesting. I think many of us, myself included, appreciate our governors more than I did several weeks ago and realize, uh, just like, of course, the obvious with the president, it matters who's in the White House. Hey, it, it really matters who's in state leadership, uh, because when the shit hits the fan, the delta between a great leader and, and not a great leader you feel it. We feel it here in California. I mean, we locked down quickly and it appears Newsom has done a good job of leadership. And uh, I mean, I don't want to get overly political, but I, I wasn't much of a fan before. So it's not like I was a huge fanboy per se, but I think his leadership has been inspiring. I'm also curious, what would you say to the business leaders of America, whether I was the CEO of a Fortune 500 or, you know, a small entrepreneur trying to serve my my customers and my community? Yeah. It varies widely. As a, as a relatively small entrepreneur, 
you know, it's, it's challenging when suddenly it's the economy stops for a period, pauses for a period. And I think that, you know, many of them are, are responding pretty well. To big businesses, I think we need to take a longer term view. And I think that we are coming around on this. A fair number of big businesses took the advantage of very low cost debt and they leveraged up companies. They uh, bought back stock. They essentially did things that now, if a big bailout comes to a big company, in many cases, what we're doing is we're bailing out the shareholders. We say we're saving the jobs of the workers, and to a degree we are. But in reality, there's been some corporate level behavior that, that I think is difficult to defend. I personally have a problem if a government bails out a company where the senior leadership of the company is making multi-millions of dollars because you know, that's my money that's being that bailing that out. So we've got some fundamental questions in our economy that get around income inequality. It get around opportunity. It gets around, you know, who's the economy operating for? If we look at, you know, the, the relative uh, plight of workers for the last 40 years, it's been pretty weak. And we can say globalization did that, cheap labor in China, but not all. Uh, part of it rests right at home with us. And I think that if we don't address that, I think business leaders have a, a social obligation because I'm studying Franklin Roosevelt for a new book I'm writing. And one of the things that stands out is he felt when he took the presidency in early 1933 is that the American democratic experiment was at risk because the very things that made people wedded to the American dream and opportunity were in question. And the rise of absolute powers in, in Japan and Germany and Italy were really harbingers of the kind of uh, unrest that occur, could occur even in the United States. Yeah. And so I think we need to think about that. Mm. And, and as you're thinking about it, as you're beginning to write on it, um, what are some of the early ahas you're coming to? Yeah, it's, it's that social cohesion is based, in my view, on everybody assuming there's something in it for them. You are happy to be an American because you have rights and you get things. You also have some obligations. But the day you don't believe that the American experiment as it is constructed now is likely to give you a better future than you have now, why would you sign up for it? Mm -hmm. Why would you believe in it? And so as soon as you have a significant part of the population that no longer believes in it, then why should they follow the rules? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's. It's rational behavior not to. And I don't know, maybe this is corny, but don't we all share a belief that part of what makes the United States great and, and other countries too, but, you know, we're talking about the U.S. now, is that this is a place where you do have opportunity, that if you apply yourself and you figure out how to create and add value and you're a good person and you contribute and you, you know, as a naturalized American who came here from Canada, you know, I can remember sitting there during my oath ceremony and the conversations around that the country does ask of you things. It does ask you to be a good citizen. And so don't we want an environment where we all feel like we have a better future and that there is an opportunity for that and that there is as equal a playing field as possible. Um, 
Isn't, don't we all want that? And don't we want it for our other Americans? Most of us got our citizenship by accident of birth and didn't do anything for it. And yet we are tied to other human beings who are fellow Americans. Don't we want it for them? And if not, why don't we want it for them? Why don't we want them to have health care? Why don't we want them to, to be prosperous? It's not a zero-sum game. And there's also the question of, you know, how much is enough? Yeah. Now, can I steal a few more moments of your time? Sure. There's a couple other big ones on yeah. my mind. One of them was, as this thing was starting, having friends in the military, friends in the fire service, friends in the, in the law enforcement world, one of the things that some of them started to bring up to me is something that I touched on with Chris as well, is there's one organization on planet Earth that knows how to uh, build and staff and supply uh, hospitals at rapid speed. There's one organization on Earth that can that can create, deploy, and protect massive supply lines like no other organization on Earth. And I could keep going, but you know what I'm talking about. And in the beginning, there seemed to be a whole bunch of reasons or concerns about deploying the U.S. military inside the four walls of the United States. And I remember Chris saying to me, yeah, not only do we know how to do all those things, we're, we're used to doing them while people are trying to kill us. If we're asked to do this while nobody's trying to kill us, who, kn who knows what we can do? And so do you think this changes the way we think about using our own military resources for humanitarian purposes inside uh, the country? I think it should. There's always this argument that says you can't use the military because it won't be ready for war. All right, well, you can fence off what you need there and you can respond pretty quickly. There's another argument that says that you don't want to use American military because it's like reconstruction in the South. It's a militarism of the state. I don't buy that either. The other one, however, is we have a volunteer military that is pretty insulated from society now. And that's not a good thing that it's insulated from society. I think nothing would be better than to using the use the military in a very visible role in things that are helpful to society. As you mentioned, the military's absolutely got the capability to do a lot. There's limits to it. But when Franklin Roosevelt, you know, took uh, the presidency, he started the Civilian Conservation Corps, and they suddenly opened thousands of camps across the country, set up by the military run by the military logistically. You could never have done that unless you had an, a logistics backbone that you could create very, very quickly. My grandfather helped run part of the, uh, the system there. I think it's absolutely appropriate and it ties the people to their military in an even tighter way. I'll tell you, when we saw the ships coming in in Southern California and, of course, down the Hudson, Look, I'm big enough to admit, when I saw those images happening, I cried. And I, I'm grateful to our military. I'm grateful for what you do overseas, of course. And to see the military deployed like that in a humanitarian effort inside the United States was a riveting, riveting moment for me and I think many others. And so... I'm hoping that this leads to a discussion about when and how we use the incredible resource of the United States military for good and for, in this case, fighting a very different kind of war against an invisible enemy and 
fascinatingly enough, the United States military is is equipped to deal with something like this in a way that I don't know that any other organization on earth is. I agree. I think there's great potential for it. And that can really help bind the, the military and society together. Now, um, Stan, is there anything else that you'd like to touch on um, before we wrap up? I, I, as I said to you, I, I could talk to you for 25 hours straight. <laughs> Chris, as always, it's been brilliant and I appreciate the opportunity. Well, thank you. And I know you hear this a lot and I'd certainly mean it from the bottom of my heart. Um, thank you so much for your service and not just your service as a military leader, but I also think our entrepreneurs are doing amazing things in, in our country and around the world to contribute to solving this problem. And I know that you and Chris and the team at McChrystal Group are, are leading uh, in an extraordinary way now as, as entrepreneurs and business leaders. So thank you so much. Well, you're kind. We'll try. Bless you. Take care. You too, brother. Well, there he is. A true American hero. We would like to thank General Stan McChrystal, Chris Fussell, and the entire team at the McChrystal Group. You can visit them on the internet at mccrystalgroup.com. And uh, they've written a number of great books. Uh, Team of Teams is maybe my favorite. Team of Teams, New Rules of Engagement for a Complex World. Check them out at mccrystalgroup.com or wherever you get legendary books. My good friends at onelifefullylive.org. This is the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. The number one life fully lived.org. And if you're like me and you can get a little grumpy and you're in the technology business or you like technology, check out Grumpy Old Geeks podcast with my friend and producer Jason DeFilippo and his awesome partner. He's been a guest on this podcast as well. Brian Schulmeister, Grumpy Old Geeks, wherever you get legendary podcasts. Now, at a time like this, being able to communicate with your employees clearly and effectively has never been more important. My friends at Socrates are the leading digital communications hub. Imagine being your people being able to text or talk any HR question right into their phone and getting a response. That's Socrates. Check out S O C R A T E S dot AI. Socrates dot AI and get employee awesome. My friends at Bottleneck Virtual Assistant want to help scale you. Check out bottleneck.online for the power of a virtual assistant. And please, if you're in a position to make a difference, we all have to contribute what we can. Let's not forget about our hospitals, our faith-based organizations, and our other non-government organizations that are making a difference in this crisis at this time. All right, I need to remind you that this Oddcast is a sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and we would love it if you shared it. All rights do remain perturbed. We must warn you that clearly this Oddcast gets created in a studio that does contain nuts. Uh, remember the sage words of Stan McChrystal and Chris Fussell. Leadership is not what you think it is, and it never was. Uh, David Lee Ross said, I don't feel tardy. Remember to spread podcasts, not viruses. Listen to the soothing sounds of KD Lang. Remember Johnny Cash was right. We're produced by Jason Filippo, Technical Awesomeness, and Lockhead.com by Sarah Knox and Jamie J. Show notes by Diane Gervasio. And the person that keeps the wheels on, Dandy, uh, Candy Dandy. <laughs> I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Robert Drake of Performance Supply in New Jersey. Sorry, Bobby. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Please stay healthy. Stay safe. Be legendary, and until we're together again, 
Follow your different.